Today we're going to be um, looking at the passage where Jesus predicts Peter's denial and just digging into some of the text we have surrounding that. So just to give you a bit of context before we jump right in, um, this passage of scripture comes at the end of what we traditionally call the Last Supper. So Jesus has gathered um, certainly his 12 disciples. There may have been other followers there as well. They are enjoying the Passover meal. It's that time of the year. Um, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. They have eaten together. He has taken the bread and broken it. He has taken the cup and blessed it and said, this is um, my blood poured out for you. He's encouraged them. And then we get to this passage where Jesus uh, predicts or tells his disciples that everyone is going to fall away on account of him. And he and Peter have an exchange about that. Then, of course, they go out to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays, is it possible for you to take this cup from me, Father? Then Jesus is arrested. He's on trial. He's crucified. And in that trial time, we, we read about Peter's denial. And how he three times said, I don't know Jesus. And then, of course, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he appears many times to his disciples. And one of those times, he encounters them all on the beach. He cooks them breakfast. And then he takes Peter aside. And he, in a sense, undoes the, what, what happened when Peter denied Jesus three times by asking Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? So that's the context of, of what we're reading. We're going to be reading from Matthew 26, verses 31 to 35, and then again, verses 69 to 75, and then picking up John chapter 21 and verses 15 to 19. So here we go. Matthew 26 and verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night... You will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Skipping to verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you are talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Then he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now picking up the John passage, John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So, that's the biblical account of Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial and the rest of the disciples. As we move through this year and we look at different passages of scripture, in the next couple of weeks we'll look at a few that kind of lead up to the crucifixion um, in the last sort of week of of Jesus' death. But as we're beholding Jesus as we encounter scripture, one of the really, I think, very important things for us to be able to do is to ask questions of the text and to really wrestle with whatever it is we see in Jesus when when we look at it. And I guess some of this will tap into the way that you see the Bible. Whether or not the way you see the Bible gives you permission to ask questions of it and to wrestle with it. Because if you were like me, you, you, you may not be, but I was certainly raised in a faith tradition that gave me less permission to ask questions of the Bible. It was almost like, here's your instruction manual, off you go. And somehow I was meant to just kind of understand what was written in it like it was simple. But what I have learnt that the Bible is well capable of handling is me really wrestling with what's written in these pages and asking very robust questions of it. Um, I think that this is actually part of the role of scripture, is that we would question it and we would wrestle with it and we would be changed in the wrestling of it. Uh, When I look at Jesus as a whole, he was a person who welcomed questions, who was very happy for people to inquire and to ask bizarre things to wrestle, to seek, to search, to find. And if the parables, which are Jesus' main kind of preferred method of teaching, are any kind of indication for us, it's that Jesus actually really likes talking about things that make no sense, that are hard to understand, and he's very happy for information to come in the back door of our minds, not the front door. So as we wrestle with Scripture, it's not as simple as just going, oh, it's black and white, and... You know, this is what the Bible says and I believe it and it's my instruction manual for life and so be it. It's like this is something to be wrestled with. And certainly Jesus in the pages of Scripture is someone to be wrestled with. And I think that Jesus of Scripture would welcome that. The warning is that if you wrestle with Scripture, you will probably walk away with a limp and Scripture will be fine. But that is part 
of looking into the Bible is that it would transform us and we would be changed as we walk, we, we walk away. So I want us to ask a few questions of this text tonight and um, we'll see where we go. There, when I, I'm going to ask you two questions and I'll just get you to talk to the people around you. This is a fair forewarning. There are no right or wrong answers. This is part of the thing about, well, wrestling with scripture. Is I'm not looking for right or wrong answers. There are not things that you can say or ask questions of that you're going to get struck down before. Um, part of the thing is just to ask yourself the question and sit in the uncertainty of it. The minute we kind of get to the point where I've got the right answer and I'm certain about it is the minute we have to get defensive about our position. And I don't think that's helpful for us or for anyone. So the whole point of being able to hold mystery, to hold uncertainty, to ask questions, to search for the truth, to allow the truth to impact us and for us to walk forward is a much better way of reading scripture than just seeking out right or wrong. Okay? So these are the two questions I want to ask you. Why did Jesus, at the very end of a lovely dinner party, for which we still celebrate and remember, tell his disciples that they were going to disown him. Like, why did he do that? Why? What was the point? That's question number one. And question number two is this. Is what the disciples did in running away and then Peter's denial, is that sin? Is sin the best word for what we're talking about here? And if not, what is a better word for what's going on here? Okay? Have a chat. Answer both of them. Answer one. (coughs) The second question, who thinks it's sin? All right. Lauren, a few people. Oh yeah, I know. It depends how you define sin. Hang on, let me give you this. And I have to take this. We're actually recording. I think if um, sin is something that's socially and churchly unacceptable, then it was probably not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's a different thing. But if it, if sin is just not trusting in Jesus and His ways, yeah, it's sin. Because he forewarned them and they went their own way, like all of us would, because we had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the West, we define sin by right and wrong. And in the East, it's about honour and shame. Yep. So then what we consider is wrong in Australia is considered to be, could be considered to be um, honourable or dishonourable, depending on the circumstances. And it's all about relationship. If you look at the commandments in the Bible, it talks about breaking relationship with people. The Ten Commandments is breaking relationship with God and then breaking relationship with people. So sin, in our definition, should be or should be broken relationship and Peter broke relationship with Jesus and so uh, Jesus came and restored that relationship with him on the side of the beach yeah okay good um 
Anyone come up with a different word other than sin? <laughs> you totally get it off, didn't that, Joe? Um, I just saw this human weakness, human power. More than different to sin. Perhaps a more compassionate type one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> human weakness, human power. Oh, we thought it was fear. Yeah. yeah. Um, has anyone. I just picked it up this look. Lack of faith and losing that faith through attack of the enemy and all that. Lack of faith, yeah. Losing it. For uh, sure. An area of sin, but more like losing, but lack of faith through attack yeah. of the enemy. Lack of faith. Yeah. The interesting thing, if you follow, well, if you think about what would have happened had they not denied Jesus, had they all stuck by Jesus, presumably all being crucified alongside Jesus, would we have church? Very deep. <laughs> like, so, now I'm not saying what they did was right or wrong, but I am saying that I'm kind of okay with what they did. Because the outcome otherwise doesn't bode so well for the, for the carrying on of, of Jesus' teaching. Now, that doesn't make it right or wrong. I, 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 it could be called, and again, it depends how you define sin. Very much so. But I do think that, for me, when I behold Jesus in this text and I think about what was going on, I feel much more comfortable talking about human weakness and fear, the fragility of us as people and our faith and our you know, self-preservation, then I do talking about it being sin in the sense of being black or white, right or wrong. But of course, if we're, t- you know, if sin is missing the mark and obviously denying Jesus isn't a good idea, not, not always a great idea to do, but, um, but I do think this passage for me, and again, this is where we're going into, I'm not saying this is right, what I'm saying, I'm just saying what I behold in the text this passage just reminds me a whole lot of what Jesus does with human vulnerability and with human weakness. Um, because we encounter these disciples who through fear and intimidation and, and just not knowing what was going on, not, not probably being ready or wanting to die, you know, show great human weakness as opposed to standing up for what they believe in and sticking by their friend and doing the horrible thing. They, they fall apart, which was good for the church in the future, but not probably so encouraging for Jesus at the time. Um, I think that to be human is to be vulnerable on every level, physically, emotionally, spiritually, I think it can be argued that the the completely vulnerable and naked human being is the most fragile and vulnerable animal in God's creation. We are more vulnerable, naked and out in the forest, than say sharks. No, the sharks aren't in the forest. Sharks are very vulnerable in the forest. Sharks, and I'm, uh, we're watching Blue Planet on Saturday nights, thinking about sharks, then, or, or deer, or kangaroo. Like the human, the human being in its natural form is very vulnerable. 
What we've got going for us is quite an intelligent brain and the ability, more than kangaroos or sharks or deer, to insulate ourselves against our own vulnerability, both physically by wearing clothes and building houses with locked doors and designing weapons that can kill any predators that come against us. We have the ability as humans to, to, to do these things, but we also have far greater ability to emotionally uh, protect our vulnerability than any other animal. But, but in our essence, I think we're quite fragile. And I think that God knows this. He has to know this. He created us in our fragile vulnerability. We as human beings are not invincible. Neither are we perfect. But we spend a lot of time and energy pretending that we are on nearly every level. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 17 says this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. We, the Bible gives us the metaphor that we are formed by the dust, from the dust. That we are temporal, like grass. That we are delicate, like wildflowers in a field. That this is part of the nature of being human, is that we have inherent built-in vulnerabilities. We're, we're not invincible, we're not perfect, we're not immortal by nature. And God knows this. To, to really grasp this about your own self takes a fair dose of humility. A fair dose of the killing of your own pride that might like to think that you are perfect or invincible. And I see in Jesus, I suppose, when, when he tells his disciples, you're all going to run away. I don't, I don't read that as some judging God on the you know, weakness of humanity. 
I read that as a gentle acceptance of the frailty of humankind. And Jesus sitting with his friends around the dinner table, just acknowledging the state of humanity. Let me ask you this question. Do you have a relationship with God that is built on humility? That is built on the awareness of your own limitations, of your own fragility, of your own weakness. The alternative is a relationship with God that's built on pretense. The pretense that you are perfect, that you are strong, that you can take anything that you have this immense ability for goodness and, you, you know, you can just, like, roll it out. And at the end of the day, a lot of that just boils down to a little bit of pride, really. One of the statements, which I repeat very often because it reminds me, this statement really helped me in walking in freedom in my own relationship with God. And like, I, I don't remember who said it to me, or I certainly didn't make it up, but somewhere along the line I heard this statement, that God is not disillusioned with me because he had no illusions about me in the first place. When I first heard that and I digested that in my spiritual life, it set me free like nothing else ever has. Because to be honest, if I'm honest about my spiritual life up until that point and it still leaks around all over the place, is that I don't like to appear broken and weak and vulnerable in front of God. I actually like to relate out of my abilities and my goodness and my togetherness. And I used to, I guess, kind of hold that somehow as some kind of badge, I suppose, in my relating to God. And consequently, along with that, was this feeling that would rise up often in my spiritual life and was quite intangible a lot of the time, but was a feeling that somehow I was disappointing God. That my weakness and my frailty and my sin were all vast disappointments to God because... They were really just vast disappointments to me and my own pride at my own self. And so I guess how I used to relate to God was I would project my own disappointment with myself onto God. I was disappointed with myself, therefore God must be disappointed with me. And I highly imagine that the disciples in this story did the same thing. Peter imagining that Jesus was deeply disappointed with him, but really he was just deeply disappointed in himself and grieved at his own weakness. And that grief turns into shame, which causes him to run and hide. And this was a pattern in my own life. So part of my spiritual growth has been actually growing in the humility that I'm not perfect, that um, I do sin, I'm going to sin, 
I am weak. I will in many ways continue to be weak. I'm fragile. I'm, I'll probably be fragile till the day I die. And kind of like, you might say, that sounds fatalistic. But actually, the reality of sitting with Jesus in that moment fully set me free from any kind of unrealistic expectations of myself that I was projecting from God onto me. Because if I can accept my own weaknesses and limitations, really, God accepts me as I am. And God wants to relate to me as I am, not my inherent projected good version of Caro, but actually just the person I am. So as soon as I can actually come to God in weakness, in vulnerability, the moment I sin and fall apart and fall over and and feel the acceptance of God, I'm set free from all of that stuff which keeps the pretense happening. I think it's extremely vital for every single one of us to to hear Jesus say to us, I know you. I know your mistakes. I know your weaknesses. I know your imperfections. I know your limitations. I know you're fragile like the dust, like the grass, like the flowers of the field. And I love you. I really love you. When we can sit in that place and hear Jesus speak to us on that level, we're free from having to pretend in our spiritual life. And we're free to be disappointed in ourselves and to accept that Jesus isn't because he knows us. He has no illusions about our imperfection, even if we have illusions about our imperfection, because he knows what we're like. Can you behold the Jesus who knows you so well in your raw, naked state? Can you behold the Jesus who knows you so well? And I think this is what the disciples sitting at that table got to see. They got to see the face of Jesus beholding their weakness and saying to them, I know you guys are going to fall away. I know. I know your weakness. I see you. I see you. And I know what's going to happen. Even if they couldn't grasp it about their own selves, I think it was, in hindsight for them probably, an incredibly freeing moment to know that this friend, this beloved friend, this Messiah, this Jesus, still sat at the table with them and ate dinner with them and broke bread with them and made covenant with them, even as he saw their weakness. He still wanted relationship and still wanted to be with them and still asked them to come with him to the garden and to pray with him and to be with him in his moment of weakness. It was quite beautiful. And all of this leads me to what I think that Jesus was doing in predicting what they were going to do. I don't think at this stage of his messiahship he was pulling out quirky tricks of prophecy to 
convince them who he was. I think we're way beyond that. He does that a bit in the beginning, you know, kind of like predicts a few things and I'm, I'm being a bit naughty, I understand. Um, you know, but he does. He, you know, I saw you, Nathaniel, under the fig tree. I know this guy. He kind of like rolls with the prophecy thing and pulls out some Old Testament stuff and has a bit of fun. But we are way beyond that by the Last Supper. We're not, he's not kind of like still trying to prove he's the Son of God by predicting what's going to happen. There's a completely other thing for me going on in this scene. I think when I behold and sit in this text, what I think Jesus is doing is that I think he is relationally with his disciples and with his followers, I think he's trying to preempt some of the shame that's going to come into these guys' life in the next day. I think he is trying to just subtly undo what he knows is going to be the human nature of what goes on by actually reaching out to them and being honest about their own weakness and still extend the hand of friendship and love to them. I think he is being quite strategic because he knows that they need to not be with him. He doesn't want them all crucified alongside him. Otherwise, the future doesn't look so good. So he knows this is going to happen. Plus, he knows them and he knows they're not ready for this confrontation of like, you know, faith and all that it means to follow him. He's the one that has to die. He's dying for the sins of the world. He doesn't need his followers to die with them, with him. So he, but I think what he's doing is he's preempting some of the shame narrative that is going to come into them when they know they've let Jesus down. Shame causes us to withdraw from relationship. It's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they've sinned and they run and hide. That's the shame narrative being played out. And our creation narrative is so incredibly wonderful in how it captures the, the nature of humanity. That we have this tra- trajectory of shame in our lives that underpins so much of how we relate to one another and how we relate to God. And I think what Jesus is doing in this encounter with his disciples is just trying to cut through some of the shame narrative that's going to happen for them so that they don't disconnect from relationship with him. Shame is really quite a hard um, emotion to define, and that's part of its slippery nature, and that's probably why it festers so well in all of our lives, because it's often quite hard to pinpoint what shame feels like and looks like. But when you do a bit of... If you've done any kind of psychology or looking at the human condition, there are some people who would say that shame underpins most of our negative encounters and negative relationships as human beings. It's one of the probably quite primary human emotions in a negative sense. So shame, if you were trying to define it, would say some version of this, that I am not good enough. or I am simply not enough. That there is something wrong with me. Don't know what it is, but I just know that feeling that there's something wrong with me. And every time I have a negative interaction with someone, you confirm what I already believe about myself, which is there's something wrong with me. (coughs) I am bad. 
is another shame narrative or I don't matter. I don't matter is shame narrative. Other words for shame are like humiliation, embarrassment, disgrace, indignity. These are the, the heavy stuff of shame. And I think what Jesus is doing here is trying to cut through some of this that's going to happen for his disciples so that they can enter greater freedom and stay connected in relationship. There's this beautiful verse that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. It says this, Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Paul at his greatest, don't you think? What a sentence. <laughs> Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. In those two verses, I think Paul captures the entirety of what's happening in the garden with the tree of good and knowledge of good and evil, knowing... Those who think they know, or think they want to know, or think that if they eat the fruit they'll know, do not know as they ought. Because what is true and most beautiful knowledge? To be known by God. Not know God, but to be known by God. That is what it means to love. Whoever loves God, it doesn't say whoever loves God knows God, it said, whoever loves God is known by God. Being known by God is the signpost that we love him. And to be known necessarily means that we are willing to expose each part of us, especially those parts that feel most hidden and that carry the most shame. To know something is to ask all the questions and to do all the observing and analysing. In contrast, to be known is necessarily to be vulnerable, to open ourselves to God's love. It is to be asked questions, to be observed, to be seen. So to be known by God means that we allow God to fully see us. It means that we allow God to observe us and to ask questions of us. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing on the beach with Peter. Jesus on the beach with Peter is not letting Peter ask him questions so Peter can gain knowledge. Jesus is asking Peter questions about Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? This is part of the being known thing, is letting Jesus ask us questions. David Benner says, those parts of us that feel most broken and that we keep most hidden are the parts that most desperately need to be known by God so as to be loved and healed.
Kurt Thompson says this, only in those instances when our shamed parts are known do they stand a chance to be redeemed. The key to our healing is being fully known. To allow God to fully know you, not the pretense of you, not the good you, not the pious you, not the Bible reading you, not the quiet time you, not the serene, godly person that you are, but to allow God to know you, really know you, in all of your mess and brokenness, in your worst moment, when you let him down, when you let yourself down, when you let other people down, to be known by God in that place, that's the start of freedom and healing. And to not always just relate to God out of our friendly face, but to allow ourselves to be fully seen. God will never disconnect from you. I think this is what Jesus is doing when he says to his disciples, I know what you're going to do. He's staying connected. He's extending the arm of relationship. I know you. Now the disciples disconnect. But what does Jesus do afterwards? Goes and finds them. Just like God in the garden goes searching for Adam and Eve. Where are you? This John is so incredible in his writing. He's rewriting the whole narrative of new creation. Just as God goes looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus goes looking for Peter on the beach. And he extends the arm of connection. It wasn't even Peter that had to do the work. It was Jesus. And this is one of the beautiful things about opening up our weakness and our shame and our vulnerabilities and our limitations to God is that we realise that he's standing there extending the arm of friendship to us even while we are choosing to hide and run away. God never disconnects. He's always reaching for us. He's always searching for us. He's always looking for us. And because he knows us so well, he knows all the places that we hide and the best place to look. So for Peter, that was on a, with, on a boat in the ocean near the beach. Because he knew Peter. He knew he was going to run back to what he knew best, which was fishing. He knew exactly where to find him. I don't think he needed kind of like post-resurrection amazing insight. I, I, think, I, think he, I think he knew Peter. And God knows exactly where to find you. He knows exactly the place you go when you feel shame. He knows exactly the place you go when you feel broken or weak, when you encounter your limitations. He knows how you try to go back to the things that fill you up. He knows your wherever it is that you go and he will follow you there and keep the arm of friendship extended because he longs for you in your full state. Mess, glory, goodness, beauty, pain, brokenness, the whole thing is what God loves about you. All of your potential and all of your limitations, all of your goodness and all of your frailty, he loves you with such an immense love. And he wants you to be known by him. He wants to know you. 
which means being willing to bring our fullness into the presence of God. I I have been trying to practice some of this in my spiritual life. Um, This is, everyone I think, when you want to dive into this being really known by God and knowing your full acceptance, you kind of need to probably figure out what that looks like in your own relationship with God. But for me, what it has begun to look like more and more is that I talk to God a whole lot more now about all my crap. And I don't mean, oh, I had a bad day and... I mean, like, God, I am so flippin' angry, I want to punch someone. I mean, God, I feel so selfish and I don't want to do that. I have regular conversations with God about what you could consider the dark side. So I now no longer hide the dark side, nor only bring the good side into the presence of God, but my conversations with God often include very bare factual honesty about the dark side of my life. So I practice that. The other thing I practice is when I have royally stuffed up, which happens regularly enough for me to practice this, I, I image myself being completely in the accepting presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't wait until I feel good about what I've done. I don't wait until I've fixed it up. I don't wait. What I do is, as soon as I know, which most of us are pretty quick at knowing the naughty stuff we do, right, yeah? As soon as I'm in that place, in, in, my, in my total unworthiness and undeserving state, I sit in the presence of God. And I just practice that. I practice God seeing me, him not being disappointed with me because he knows my weakness. I'm like a flower in the field and he desperately loves me and he's got no illusions about me. So I can sit there in my naked horribleness and feel totally accepted by the love of God. So this is how I practice it in my relationship with God. So it's not just like an intellectual idea. It's, a, it's, it's become spiritual practice for me. It's like the, the, the thing that has helped me image this, and this is a parenting analogy. Um, there have been times when my, one of my children have done something very naughty, and uh, I might have also done something naughty, which is yell and scream at them in ways that are unbecoming for a lovely child of God. Um, but, you know, I've seen those moments in my children's life where shame has entered. They're, they're, they're totally embarrassed, they're totally ashamed. And all they want to do is run away. And I have grabbed them and held them tight. And they have literally been kicking and screaming. And I have held them there in that place until they break. And they sob and they sob and they sob. I don't do this all the time. That would sound like really wonderful parenting. It's just like that's happened two or three times in eight years. That's just, you know. But because I've imaged that breaking from shame and running to utter sobbing, and like, you know that weight that your kids have on you when they are, like, they, they, they fall and you've got them. 
I know what I look like when I am in shame and I'm running away from God and I allow the love of God to grab me and hold me while I kick and I scream and I fight and I yell until I break with the unbelievably good grace of God which holds me but feels like holy fire because the only thing I want to do is run and to stay grasped in that holy place of acceptance means I have to burn and die to every proud thought I have in me about my own sense of worthiness and being deserving of God because in that place the only I am a mess and I am angry and I am running and if I can allow the arms of God to capture me, his holy fire will set me free from my pride and I can fall into his arms of love and know he's got me. This is how it works to be in relationship with God, to be known by God, to know that in your darkest moment, in your worst place, in the time when you have utterly disappointed yourself, the arms of Jesus grab you and hold you tight and offer the Holy Father to you that can burn through your pride and you can fall into the arms of grace. This is Jesus predicting his friends' weakness. This is Jesus beholding them in their frailty. This is Jesus sitting at the dinner table with those close to him and saying, I see you. I see you and I love you because I choose to break bread with you. And I choose to take you to the garden. I choose you to witness my own weakness. And I choose that when you've stuffed up, I follow you. And I follow you and I follow you wherever you run. And I extend the arm of relationship to you because I don't want you living in shame. And I want to know you and I want you to be known by me. So let's do this thing called life together. How about we finish? <laughs> How about you just close your eyes and in your own way Invite the Holy Spirit to just be very present to you right now. And I want you to just grasp Jesus being with you right now in this moment. However it is that you find that possible, maybe you imagine Jesus sitting next to you. Maybe you picture him. Maybe you just sense his presence. Whatever it is that works for you to kind of encounter Jesus. Just be in this moment with Jesus. And I want you to ask Jesus this question. Jesus, are there any parts of myself that I'm hiding from you?
And I want you to hear Jesus saying these words to you. I love you. I accept you as you are right now. I see your weakness. I see your frailty. I see your brokenness. I see your potential for sin. And I love you with a holy love. Holy Spirit, I pray that this week you would mediate to us the truth of Jesus and the acceptance of Father God. I pray that as we go into this week with all of our goodness and joy, all of our gifting and potential, as well as our limitations and weakness, that God, we would allow ourselves to be known by you. And if there are places in our lives where we have hidden parts of ourselves or parts of our history from you, God, I ask that we would be able to bring them into your sight and begin a journey of healing as we allow ourselves to be really known and accepted. So Holy Spirit, wrap us up. Wrap us up in the arms of God. Help us to know when we're running and hiding and help us to choose to stay connected to you. We love you, God. We do. Amen.